Hello, and welcome back to Matt's Music Class, the podcast for learning to understand music. I'm Matt W. Dayton, and today we are digging into the weeds of the concept we identified in the last lesson, episode 7, as tonality. We'll also need to be familiar with the letter names of keyboard pitches, which were introduced way back in lesson 4. So if you haven't listened to lessons uh, 4 and 7, or if you don't remember anything about tonality and or keyboard letter names, hit pause on this episode and go listen or re-listen to whatever you need right now to make sure we're somewhat familiar with these concepts. I'll just play some music here while I wait. So I just want to start by making sure your keyboard is in front of you because it's a really helpful visual aid for what we're doing today. If you don't have an actual keyboard, you can look at a picture or a diagram of a keyboard. That will help you follow the plot and just sing along with the playing bits, pretending you're tapping the keys. That will work for what we're doing today. Now remember we learned in Lesson 7 that tonality is like a frame of reference that establishes one pitch to be like the center of gravity, called the tonic and that forces all the other pitches to orient themselves into like a constellation around the tonic pitch. The first thing I want to do today is to introduce you to the technical and practical term for that constellation idea, which is the scale. You may have heard somewhere that musicians have to learn their scales, and it's supposed to be a very boring task of pure drudgery to practice one's scales for hours on end no matter what instrument you're playing, right? Well, the reason musicians have to do that onerous task is because putting all the possible constellations for every possible tonic pitch into your muscle memory gives you like a superpower of facility in improvising, learning new pieces, and moving a song you know to a different tonic which you might have to do if you want to play with other musicians who are playing different instruments and such. We may not have the time to gain that musical superpower in this lesson, but we can still look at what scales are and how they relate to the practical side of tonality. So we actually played the most common type of scale on our keyboards way back in lesson 4, as part of our introduction to the keyboard. It's just starting on a C and playing each successive white key upward, which is to the right, until you get to the next C, at which point you can keep going and do the same scale with higher pitches, or you can go back down. This probably sounds familiar to most of you as the Do Re Mi scale. Let's play this scale together one time, from C to the next higher C and back down, just to get it into our fingers as well as our ears. C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, C, B, Good. Now, just in case you'd like to be able to play your scale and have it sound really smooth, like this, 
I'll just tell you that the trick to it is in the pattern of fingers you use. The most common fingering pattern goes thumb, index, middle, and as you're playing the third note with your middle finger, you move your thumb under that middle finger to be ready to play the fourth note, and as you play the fourth note with your thumb, you shift your whole hand very quickly to get all the fingers in line on successive white keys, playing thumb, index, middle, ring, and the next note is the C, where you can end the scale and start going back down by playing the C with your pinky and reversing the fingering you just did, pinky, ring, middle, index, thumb, this time crossing the middle finger over the top of the thumb and shifting the whole hand back down to play the bottom three notes, middle, index, thumb. If you wanted to keep going upward at the top there, you would cross the thumb under the ring finger, shift the hand up, and keep going until you're ready to go back down, reversing the fingering pattern. It gets to be a very natural hand slash finger movement when playing keyboard generally, so with just a little diligent practice of that fingering pattern, your scales will start sounding very smooth in no time. Right, so we've got the Do, Re, Mi scale starting on C and just using white keys. What if we do the same thing, just go up seven white keys and back down, but starting on a different pitch? Will it sound the same? Let's try it. Find a G, that's four white keys up from C, so you go C, one, two, three, four, there it is. And let's try the scale from this G up to the next higher G. Play it with me. G, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Hmm. It sounded mostly like the Do, Re, Mi scale, but there was a spot in there that should have surprised you. Just listen to it this time. See if you can spot where it sounds, not how you'd expect. It was up at around the top of the scale, the note just before the high G, wasn't it? Now let's try playing another white key scale starting on E this time. Two white keys up from C. Ready? Play with me. E, F, G, A, B, C, D, E. That one sounded 100% different from our familiar Do, Re, Mi, didn't it? Now the Do, Re, Mi type scale is called the major scale. I assume because it's the most common one used in Western music, and each of the two different sounding scales we just played, all white keys from G to G and then from E to E, is its own type of scale, the Mixolydian and Phrygian scales respectively, not as commonly used but very useful in certain styles of music. And so we can be sure by now that what makes something a major scale is not the fact that it uses only the white keys on the keyboard. It will only sound like the major scale if you use the white keys and have C as the tonic. In other words, the scale starts and ends on C. What really makes something a major scale is a fixed pattern of distances between the successive pitches. And this is why I like the analogy of a constellation. Because you can recognize a constellation of stars even in different seasons, when it might show up in a different part of the night sky, or it might be rotated around in some way from your vantage point. But it's the same constellation because a pattern of the distances and angles between the constituent stars is what stays the same. And so here's where we finally come back to the importance of the black keys on the keyboard. The way we measure a distance between pitches on the keyboard is with the smallest unit of distance being the difference in sound between a white key and the black key right next to it, which might be just slightly above or just slightly below it. If a white key doesn't have a black key on one side of it, like for instance a C has no black key below it, there's just the B white key, 
then the distance between it and its neighboring white key will be that same smallest unit of distance. And thus, looking at all the white keys and black keys from C to the next higher C, we can say that our keyboards, and our western tonal system of which it is a useful diagram, divides up this big distance between two C's into 12 equal parts. And the size of each of those parts, or the pitch distance spanned by each of those parts, is called a semitone, or half-step. So a semitone, which is this tiny step up or down from one key to its closest neighbor key, whether white or black, is our basic unit of measurement. And the major scale is defined by a particular sequence of semitones, namely 2, 2, 1, 2, 2, 2, 1. Now let's listen closely to what this abstract pattern means when we hear the major scale. Starting on C again, when we go from C to D, notice there's a black key in between them, which we've skipped, and that means the distance from C to D is, and sounds like, two semitones. Same thing happens from D to E. There's a black key in between them, so that's a distance of two semitones again. When we go from E to F, there's no black key in between them, which means this distance is only one semitone. So far, playing the major scale from C to F, we've heard the 2, 2, 1 part of the semitone sequence that defines the major scale. After that, the sequence goes 2, 2, 2, 1. So from F, the next three pitches should each have a black key in between them, which they do. F to G, G to A, A to B. And the scale should end going just one semitone up from B to C. No black key in between makes it just one semitone. Now our ears actually do this processing, checking the semitone distances, automatically, if we grew up listening to music that uses the major scale a lot. And this is why the vast majority of humans can easily recognize a song they know even when it's played with different tonic pitches, or in different arrangements, than the version they first learned. So even a group of people who don't consider themselves singers can nevertheless join in a chorus of Happy Birthday if some brave soul simply starts singing the tune with a random starting pitch. Happy birthday to... Happy birthday to... Happy birthday to... Let's use this ability of our ears to turn our G mixolydian scale, all white keys, into a major scale since it already sounds mostly like the major scale and will only need to change one pitch. Here's the scale starting on G with only white keys again. G, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And the only spot that didn't sound major scale-ish was the second to last pitch, the F natural. Natural just meaning the white key version of that pitch. So we know this distance from F to G sounds wrong, and there's a black key in between them, which means it's a distance of two semitones. The semitone pattern that defines the major scale demands that the distance between the last two pitches be only one semitone. So, we just need to replace the F natural with the black key right above it, because it's one semitone away from G. Try that with me. G scale with all white keys, except replace the F with its higher black key. Here we go. G, A, B, C, D, E, black key, G. 
G. Yep, that's the major scale sound. And so, when you move a tonic pitch, which is the starting and ending pitch to a scale, if you want the scale type to stay the same, and thus make the song you learned in that scale sound the same with the new tonic, you will have to modify some of the white keys up or down, using the neighboring black keys. In the case of our G major scale, we call that black key, which replaced the F, an F sharp. When you make a pitch sharp, it just means you moved it up by one semitone. And likewise, when you make it flat, you move it down by one semitone. Of course, the keyboard being laid out the way it is, this sharp and flat naming system can get confusing because it means that the same exact black key on the keyboard might be called, for instance, a G flat, if it's being used to make a G one semitone lower, or it will be called an F sharp if it's being used to make an F one semitone higher. But that's just one of those things you get used to after a while. Okay, now that's as far into the weeds as we need to get on abstract semitone patterns and intervallic relationships between pitches, and hopefully it at least gives you a flavor of how it's possible to see musical pitches as a sea of abstract numerical patterns, and this is probably where the somewhat superficial meme of music and math having a special relationship comes from. But the practical side of pitch patterns is what's more important for our musical purposes here, so let's try using what our ears know intuitively, as well as our new ability to use black keys on the keyboard, to play When the Saints Go Marching In with a different tonic. First, we'll play When the Saints Go Marching In in our original tonality, which was starting on G, and it conveniently just uses five pitches, G, A, B, C, and D. Okay, let's play it one time like this. Here we go. G, B, C, D. G, B, C, D. G, B, C, D. B, G, B, A. B, B, A, G. G, B, D, 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 C. B, C, D, B, G, A, G. Good. Now let's see what happens if we keep our finger movements exactly the same, but move your whole hand down by three white keys so that your thumb is now on the D and your other fingers are lined up on successive white keys, E, F, G, and A. Let's play the same fingering pattern starting on D and listen to see if it sounds like the same song. Here we go. Aha! Well, it certainly sounds like a spooky version of the song, maybe more like when the ghosts go marching in, so to find the exact spot or spots where this new version in D went spooky, we have two options. We could just feel around and try to harness our ear's intuitive sense of what each pitch should sound like until we find the offending notes that need to be modified into black keys, or we could figure out what combination of white and black keys belong to the D major scale and make sure to only use those keys to play the song starting on D. I'll leave the figuring out of any major scale on the keyboard as your optional homework, depending on how much keyboard knowledge you want to explore, but this is primarily a listening course, so let's get practice using our ears with precision. Let's start by just looking at the first molecule in the original version of When the Saints Go Marching In. Here it is again, starting on G, and using only white keys. 
If we're familiar enough with the tune, we should be able to sing or hum it to ourselves. Do, 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 do. And slow it down a bit. Do, 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 do. So that's how we know it should sound, no matter what pitch it starts on. So let's sing it starting on a lower pitch and keep it sounding like the same tune. Sing it with me starting here. Oh, when the saints. Now here. Oh, when the saints. Okay, now here's a D. Let's sing the tune starting on D. Oh, when the saints. Now compare that with what it sounds like when I play it on the keyboard with only white keys. Oh, when the saints. Did you notice where the keyboard pitch clashed with my voice? It was the second pitch, which was an F natural on the keyboard. That's the one that needs to change, so let me try replacing it with the F sharp, the black key one semitone higher. Here it is using F sharp instead of F natural. Aha! That sounded right, didn't it? Let's try playing the whole song now, replacing all F naturals with F sharps, and see if there are any other changes we need to make to play this song with D as the tonic. To make it easier to always play the black key F sharp instead of F natural, by the way, you can move your hand up a bit on the key so that each finger is resting on its successive white key except the middle finger, which will be resting a bit higher up on the F sharp black key. Here we go. When the saints go marching in, starting on D, using F sharps. D, F sharp, G, A. D, F sharp, G, A. D, F sharp, G, A. F sharp, D. F sharp, E, F sharp, E, D, D, F sharp, A, 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 G, F sharp, G, A, F sharp, D, E, D. Very good. And that's the only modification we needed to make to move When the Saints Go Marching In to the key of D. Okay, so your homework is to take this new ability to play a song with different tonic pitches and see if you can move When the Saints Go Marching In to the key of F. So start on the F natural key. Again, you can use either the intuitive method by ear or the major scales semitone pattern to figure out the keyboard keys that will make the song sound right in the new tonic. If you want to get really advanced, try figuring out when the saints go marching in with B as the tonic. You'll need a lot of black keys for that one. Now for a little respite from all this keyboard work. Let's sit back, relax, and shift our attention to musical sounds themselves and how they feel on a visceral level. So, whenever you hear music that includes two or more different pitches sounding at the same time, that music technically has harmony. And while the ordinary usage of the word harmony almost always includes connotations of pleasantness, beauty, and things working smoothly and perfectly together, the technical musical term by itself is completely value-neutral. So you might have ugly harmony, or banal harmony, or inappropriate harmony, or quirky harmony. Or interesting harmony, or delicate harmony, or lush harmony. But they all technically qualify as harmony. So I'm going to play you some long harmonies, i.e. long multiple pitches at the same time, of varying qualities. And I want you to just try to notice your very first response to each one and what sort of visceral feelings get evoked as you continue attending to each harmony. Try to pay attention to whether your initial feeling evolves into specific thoughts or images, 
and then into more complex emotions perhaps, but always keeping your attention anchored to the sounds themselves as musical harmonies. So this is really a lot like a meditation exercise. We could think of it as harmonic yoga. Try your best to keep your attention on the sound while noticing your visceral and emotional reactions here. you do. Hopefully that didn't create too much of an emotional roller coaster for you, and hopefully you noticed that the harmonies I started and ended with felt very different from the harmonies in the middle. I've mentioned briefly in previous lessons that when multiple pitches sound simultaneously, the frequencies of their sound waves will be smushed together with a greater or lesser degree of blending. And if the amount of blend is great enough, they will sound almost like one and the same pitch 
and thus they will get the same pitch letter name. Well, that same concept of blending or clashing of simultaneous pitches is the first general level of description that you can use to characterize the overall harmony of any music that you listen to. The technical terms for the blending and clashing are consonance for high blend and dissonance for high clash. So in our harmonic yoga exercise, we would say that the beginning and ending harmonies were all pretty consonant, and the ones in the middle were all relatively dissonant. And again, these terms, like the term harmony, are relatively value neutral. So just because a harmony is dissonant doesn't mean it's ugly or bad. Depending on the context, a super dissonant harmony might be just the color that makes a piece of music truly sublime. And different styles of music all over the world use different levels of, and ascribe different meanings to, consonance and dissonance. So the last thing we'll do for this lesson, as an introduction to the big wide world of harmony and consonance and dissonance, is to listen to several music examples and describe how much consonance or dissonance we hear in most of their harmonies. So let's start out with some music for guitar. Listen to a snippet of this dance by the great English Renaissance composer William Byrd, arranged and performed here by the L.A. Guitar Quartet, and ask yourself, are these harmonies, the simultaneous pitches, mostly blending smoothly to create consonants, or are there a lot of clashing pitches creating dissonance? Now compare that Renaissance dance with this contemporary solo piece composed by one LA guitar quartet member, Andrew York, and performed by another, Bill Kanengeiser, with the same question, are these harmonies mostly consonant or mostly dissonant? Hopefully the Renaissance piece's harmonies felt much more familiar and smooth to you, and the jazzy blues harmonies felt much spikier, or at least more harmonically colorful, and that's because the Renaissance piece used almost exclusively consonant harmonies, while the blues solo used a much higher proportion of added clashing notes in its harmonies. Now let's listen to some harmonies in wind instruments. Here's a piece for clarinet trio by contemporary classical composer John Harbison. and compare that to an 18th century classical flute duet by Friedrich Kulau.
Again, the newer piece used mostly dissonant harmonies, while the older music used mostly consonant harmonies. That's certainly been the trend in Western concert music, and also to some extent in Western pop and folk styles as well, to have newer music use a lot more dissonance in its harmonies. But here's a very old song from the tradition of Bulgarian folk music. How much consonance do you hear in these harmonies? Yes, indeed, there are some music cultures in the world, like Bulgarian traditional music, that actually treat some of what we Westerners consider highly dissonant harmonies as so beautiful that they're used more frequently than our straightforward consonant harmonies are in our music traditions. So now we've dipped our toes a little bit into the waters of harmony and gotten a taste of the abstract mathematical relational system of pitch intervals that orders those waters and creates the forces of tonality. In the next lesson, we'll get deeper into harmony by using our keyboards to actually play the most basic harmonic structures used in Western and related musics, the triads. So that will be our practical application of harmony, but from now on, you can practice being aware of how consonant and dissonant any music you happen to hear is. And as you listen to a song, you may even notice that the amount of dissonance might increase at some points in a mostly consonant song, or you might hear some moments of consonance in a mostly dissonant song. Those changing levels of consonance and dissonance in the harmonies always have expressive meaning that will clue you in to what the music is all about and what it wants to communicate. Our listening examples came from recordings that you should buy if you enjoyed them. The guitar quartet arrangement of William Byrd's My Lord of Oxenford's Mask was performed by the LA Guitar Quartet on their 1992 album Dances from Renaissance to Nutcracker. Then, Andrew York's solo guitar piece, called Blues for J.D., was performed by Bill Kanengeiser on his 2003 album Classical Cool, Jazz Currents for Solo Classical Guitar. And after that, we heard a bit of the first movement of John Harbison's Trio Sonata, version for two clarinets and bass clarinet, performed by Timothy Paradise, Laura Arden, and Theodore Schoen on the 2009 Naxos album Clarinet Hive. The flute duo we heard was the third movement of Friedrich Kulau's second flute duo, Opus 10, performed by Laurel Zucker and René Siebert on their 2004 album The Complete Kulau Flute Duos and Divertissement. And last, we heard the Bulgarian traditional song Vetarve, performed by musicians of Levareka on the 1990 album produced by Ethel Rehm and Martin Koenig called Village and Folk Music of Bulgaria. As always, if you hear music that adds value to your life, please support its continued creation by directly supporting the musicians who make it. And if this episode of Matt's Music Class has added any value to your life, you can support it by telling a friend about it, reviewing it on Apple Podcasts, or donating directly to it on my website, mwdaytonmusic.com. That's it for me. I'll catch you next time. Happy listening. Happy listening.